0: people think is, oh, it's retail. No, it's not. It's institutional players basically moving into this non-recourse leverage to generate substantial you know, returns.
1: Hey everyone, it's me, your host, Alison Reichel. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Inflated Expectations, where we bridge the gap between economics and cryptocurrency. Today I'm joined by a very special guest, queen of Finwit, queen of my heart, <laughs> creator of the NOPE indicator, uh, a woman who wears mini hats, Lily Frankis so Lily, thank you for coming on for this first episode.
0: Thank you for having me. I
1: wouldn't have wanted to start any other way. But before we dive into the 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 serious interview questions, um, I have a few questions for you just to to tell the people back at home more about your background and kind of your stance on crypto in general, so they can have a better understanding of where your answers are coming from. And then I've sprinkled in a few, few fun surprise questions along the way too. So um but first, how did you get interested into crypto and where do you see it holding most of its value in um, sort of the monetary sense like its integration into monetary regimes as a currency mm-hmm. or as um, just an asset class?
0: So to give a bit about my background, mm-hmm. I actually was until recently like a graduate student studying mathematics. I come from like a very quantitative perspective on a lot of things just because you know even before that I was actually a software engineer at LinkedIn and Stripe, so I've always, I really, you know, always look at data essentially. And I'm always looking at, is this, you know, logical? Is there like a coding basis for things? And when I started, I really didn't understand crypto. I mean, I started investing in, I would say 2015 or 2016 when I actually first joined the workforce. And, you know, I mean, equities to some degree make sense. You learn it in a business degree, essentially, about, like, what are stocks, what are bonds. You don't really learn in depth, like, about the ideas of, like, valuation or, you know, why, basically, we have all these rules that we do or, like, what is the basis of valuation models. But, so, I mean, when crypto burst on the scene last year, I was very skeptical. I mean, I still... Have a lot of reservations, you know, that interestingly make me quoted probably as much by anti-crypto people as pro-crypto people on Twitter, which I find is, like, super hilarious. And, but, I mean, my current day job, I actually work at a crypto hedge fund, so I, you know, do research on the quantitative analysis for, like, trading strategies for, you know, organized crypto assets, mostly, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum. So, you know, my views over time have evolved on the asset. Do I think it's overvalued now? Maybe. I mean, it's historically really difficult on a non-productive asset to understand like what is a fair value. I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, argue in Sicily, oh crypto is going to zero, oh crypto is going to million. And the ch- the reality is maybe both, maybe neither. I mean, I have come up with a few ways that I've looked at it from a evaluation perspective that seem to at least track historically. The biggest issue that I think a lot of people don't understand, and that's mostly because most people don't have a strong statistics background or probability theory or anything, is when you look in the past, you are looking at one path that an asset or, you know, something took. You know, when you look at Bitcoin over the past years, it's very hard with a straight face to say, look, this is what it's going to be like the next 10 years or even next year because it's had an extraordinary rise. I mean, it feasibly, we're not going to see Bitcoin behave from 2020 to 2030 as it did from 2010 to 2020. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in that case, like a lot of popular models, like stock to flow, for instance, they may fit historically. A lot of, you know, you know, there's still a lot of people trying to develop this more empirical way of understanding Bitcoin's long evolution, but the evidence is pretty inconclusive.
1: Yeah, I think that's, and so that kind of leads into the second question, which is like, what do you see as some of the biggest issues in crypto as it stands, whether that be narratives that enhance its volatility to the game-theoretic components of its network effects to regulation or the lack thereof?
0: I think everybody's kind of realized, you know, it's it's been an interesting evolution. One thing I've commented on Twitter is that people seem more vitriolic against Bitcoin now, that it's, you know, at least theoretically in this bear market than they were when it was going up. And I think a lot of that is more just understanding, um, essentially, that when it was going up, it was very difficult to be an anti-Cruper person. Because, you know, when you looked outside or when you looked at the chart, it was like, well, clearly the people who are pro crypto were making a ton of money and you weren't. Or if you were shorting it, it was even worse. Now, a lot of people have gotten more vitriolic about, you know, crypto's demise, which, you know, is kind of the real, you know, hallmark of what you would say the start of a bear market looks like. Um... Do I think that regulation will kill it? Probably not. It's very difficult to kill an idea, you know, so to speak. I think that the technology that, um, you know, underpins crypto, like the blockchain, for instance, that's not going away anytime soon. And there are many non-cryptocurrency, like actual use cases for it. I think, you know, a lot of people have looked at certain effects like hash rate, for instance, or miners, or on-chain metrics, or Bitcoin wallets. I mean, one of the biggest things I've done or, you know, that I look at as a quantitative researcher really is this idea of causality, which is essentially saying I can see the relationship between two things, and maybe that's enough sometimes to predict them, but you know. Does A cause B versus are A and B just correlated, for instance? And the danger is when they're correlated is they could have some real relationship. But more often than not, you see the correlated variables, even ones that superficially look good, have some more of a, like, they're more latently related. So if you look at, let's say, the hash rate, a lot of people have discussed, oh, Bitcoin's value is related to the growth in hash rate. And if you look at it and you read papers about it or even plot it yourself, you see that it's actually the opposite. That Bitcoin's valuation is not a function of hash rate, but hash rate is a function of Bitcoin valuation. Because as, you know, Bitcoin's price goes up, as the spot price increases, there's more incentive for miners to turn online, essentially, and start, you know, basically mining and confirming transactions versus, and similarly when you look at hash rate of work, you know, just the usage of the network itself, you know, people are trading it more. Bitcoin and other cryptos have positive price elasticity. So essentially demand increases as price goes up. And in those cases, it isn't a predictive relationship because, you know, as we saw in April, for instance, when, or was it February, when certain miners in China went offline, or even now, you know, when China actually banned basically mining, I think at least in most provinces, you know, you didn't see a linear or even causal relationship with Bitcoin's price. So, you know, I think there's a lot of danger in putting too much stake in these models. You know, I think a lot of people have pushed back recently on talk to flow because it seems pretty unfalsifiable. But, you know, do I think eventually there will be a more cohesive, like empirically based model? Sure. Do I think that there will ever be like a good model which tells you 100% how to predict price of a non-productive asset? Probably not.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was actually leading into my next question, which is on sort of where you saw valuation in the market in the longer run and sort of that relationship between hash rate and price that tends to be misunderstood whereas people think that there is some sort of direct relationship between the two. I know you've spoken about this before, and I saw you have a great thread on Twitter, you have a great article about this. And I, um, it's actually, I had a couple comments on Twitter asking me to, to ask you this question specifically, but do you see intrinsic value in cryptocurrencies?
0: So that's, I would say that's like a difficult question. I mean, intrinsic in the sense of like, is there a fixed economic value, like let's say with gold, like is there an industrial, you know, use case for it? The answer is eventually maybe. I see it more in the idea of smart contracts, essentially, where you are almost basically using the cryptocurrency as a unit of compute power. So, you know, let's say you're on the Ethereum network and you're using a dApp or or you know using some kind of basically blockchain power, decentralized, something or other. Like in that case, you could argue that is intrinsic value in the sense that if that resource is in demand and you basically are paying for access, that is equivalent to an economic value here. Do I think that is a good definition of intrinsic value? Probably not. I think, you know, my definition tends to be more on the idea of... Um, Essentially, like, what is the value that someone will pay for in the absence of speculative demand? And in that case, it's really difficult to tell because, I mean, one of the cornerstones of a speculative asset is positive price elasticity. So, you know, if you look at, for instance, the S&P, demand and trading volume for it doesn't basically follow a positive price elasticity. So when it goes up in value, you don't see people usually buying more of it. You actually honestly see the opposite mostly for traditional equities. When Bitcoin transitions more to, you know, something that shows either neutral or negative for the elasticity then it'll be a lot easier to suss out like what is the intrinsic value of these assets. But I think it's trivially apparent that there has to be some non-zero intrinsic value. I mean, I was having this discussion with somebody recently and you know even just its optionality creates or sorry volatility creates a non-zero price essentially because you know you are paying for that volatility and speculative demand Mm -hmm.
1: yeah i think that's a really good point um and so you had mentioned earlier a little bit too that we're seeing maybe what could be the beginnings of a bear market. And as a resident of crypto Twitter, I'm sure you've seen every day it's like, we're in a bear market, we're in a bull market. Um, where do you think we are currently? And do you think those are even appropriate terms to use to describe sort of the crypto markets in general?
0: It is like a really difficult topic because, you know, the big thing, and I talked about this recently, was, you know, Bitcoin, for instance, is like 70 to 80 walls usually, or, you know, really. Volatile itself. And I mean, the traditional version of like what is a bear market is a 20% price decline. But that obviously isn't substantial enough for such a speculative, you know, highly volatile asset. Because, you know, if Altria, for instance, dropped 20% tomorrow, you know, Edmo, the stock, like that would be a bear market. (laughs) But, you know, for crypto, where you saw what, like a 400% increase over you know, six to eight months, it doesn't make sense to apply that same metric when you're defining what is or is in the bear market. Do I have like a good definition? You know, is it 70%, is it 80%, is it 90%? I think you could really define it based on other factors for bear markets. I mean I think one of the biggest things we're gonna see is as this continues, especially if there really you know is either A precipitous drop in you know the price or more likely it looks like a stair step down you're going to see a lot less leverage being used especially by retail players which will show basically a negative relationship with volatility itself so you know i think we won't be in a bear market until basically leverage players are wiped out and are we there yet maybe i think you know volatility has decreased but at the same time, you know, I wouldn't call us in a bear market either. Yeah.
1: And I think it is hard to speak about these things, especially on Twitter, as you know, because people tend to cling to their narratives, whether or not, you know, we're in things like a super cycle or in 2017, it was huddling. And, and so I think that can get people in
0: a lot of trouble, too. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I think, I mean, it, a lot of people you know, try to affix narratives and simple solutions to what is essentially a speculative, stochastic process. You know, I mean, I think, is there you know something to a Bitcoin boom and bust cycle? Like, yes. Does it mean we're going to repeat the same trends we had in, like, 2011 or 2013 or 2017 or, you know, whatever? The answer is no. I mean, I, I think that especially when you're looking as such a rare occurrence historically it's really dangerous to basically extrapolate that to the present and into the future but do anything it stands for crypto probably not yeah
1: right so for our next questions hot take time um (laughs) throwing in a little non-serious question keep everybody on the edge of their seats we were on a spaces together last night and for our next spaces, you said that maybe we could talk about something something fun, something more lighthearted, like boys, dating lives, you know, just girly things. Um, so, so, something still on the topic of evaluation, but switching gears a little bit. Who do you think is the most eligible bachelor or bachelorette on crypto Twitter? Like, if you could have a spaces that was the bachelorette, who would it be? Like, in terms of BitCloud, think in terms of BitCloud, who are you long, who are you short? And there's no second best, so you can only pick one.
0: Well, obviously, on crypto Twitter, Bachelorette is you. I mean We're still eligible, so we're we're still trying to look for, like, a good world leader for you. Right. I mean, I heard that Nayib Bukele probably butchered his name, but I'm also, you know, like, an American, so that's kind of (laughs) respected. I mean, he's taken, but maybe there's someone nice in, like, Paraguay or, like, Panama for you. Um, On the male side, I mean... There's so many non-accounts that it's really difficult to tell. I would say... I mean, so the issue with me giving an answer here is I feel like when this goes live, like, I will get DMs, and I really don't want to get DMs. So I'm just going to say from your perspective, so maybe Niraj or Nick.
1: (laughs) I'm sure everybody will be very happy to hear the Niraj thing. (laughs) (laughs) who have been desperately trying to get to come on. Um, Alright, fair answers. I respect it. (laughs) So now, on the topic of game theory, I want to talk about shelling points. And for those who don't know, a shelling point is a solution chosen by a group of people without coordination or simply put, without communication. Um, Some say Bitcoin is a shelling point because it's brought together a decentralized network of users who are seeking to accomplish uh, a goal such as reforming monetary regimes or. Uh, eliminating corruption from monetary policy. Uh, would you agree or disagree with this sort of sentiment that Bitcoin is a shelling point?
0: So it's interesting. I mean, we can deconstruct it in a couple of ways. I mean, you know, by your definition, for example, the shelling point, it's non-cooperative in a sense. So it's people that are non-cooperative, rather it's cooperation, you know, using lack of communication essentially. And, you know, trivially, social media for instance, is a major driver of the crypto community. Like you can see to the point that social interaction and popularity are predictive of price. So would that be, you know, kind of a counterpoint to this idea of non-communication? I think there is a significant portion of the crypto community, especially when you get to, let's say the whale level or, you know, the people who own a large amount of the currency. There is some implicit communication, but the danger here, or rather the caveat is, and I talk about this a lot with mementos, and you know ideas of social, you know, data as you know predictive variable for, let's say, financial time series, is they depending on the situation and depending on the person. There is a strong incentive to lie, you know, based on in-group dynamics, and you see this strongly in crypto because I talk about it. Crypto is essentially what you'd call cult asset where, you know, people who disagree with the party line and, you know, that's evolved pretty rapidly over the years. I think if you look way back when, you know, Bitcoin maxis were kind of in charge. Now it's, you know, more multi-coin where Bitcoin maxis are kind of a running joke. But essentially, you see people that are, you know, communicating and therefore have some level of cooperation, but you don't actually know if they're holding or not. And of course, as a person, you know, holding an asset, you are taking on substantial risk. And can you trust that the other person on the other, you know, end of that account or the app you're using is actually holding? And the answer is not completely. I mean, I think in general, you know, part of this communication built this you know, like I said, almost a cult like, you know, asset where you see this, if you look at on-chain metrics like UTXO, like there are large accounts that are holding Bitcoin that have not moved in years. You know, essentially there are people who are so steadfast in their holding that, you know, you can basically see that there is true belief. And therefore, as an individual, you know, participant in this game, you might not be able to have full communication in the sense of, you know, let's say like perfect information about what, you know, your collaborators, or are doing, but you can get a good idea. On the other hand, I think that the transparency of the blockchain also creates a level of communication between players in the sense that unlike, for instance, traditional equities where you really cannot directly suss out what everybody else holds. You know, you don't see that as much in crypto because even when you have, like, big mixers or exchange accounts, like, those get tagged pretty quickly. So, I wouldn't, like, call it a perfect shelling point from the communication perspective.
1: Yeah, I I agree with you there. I think the misguided narrative where things get a little conflated is the difference between regulation and having some direct method of centralization and a complete lack of coordination and communication. Because with shelling points, the main idea is that you and other people just arrive together at this particular point. And perhaps at one point, Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies did sort of represent that in the very beginning stages when maybe the Internet wasn't as well developed and these networks weren't as well established. But now that we actually have stronger networks and people uh, holding Twitter spaces with the president of El Salvador, um, there's definitely communication, there's definitely coordination even if it's not on a regulated scale.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I pretty much agree. I mean, I think you're seeing over, you know, you're seeing this for sure in the traditional equity markets over the past year. But, you know, there is a new level of retail collaboration, You know, especially when you look at, let's say, the meme stocks or crypto. That just wasn't there before. But, you know, the other major question essentially is that you know, is that enough to move the needle? You know, do you think that this level of communication is really demonstrative of Bitcoin's future? Or is it more, you know, and I talk about this actually on you know, social media as well, do you think that evolution of Bitcoin's price, for instance, is driven by social cooperation? Or do you think that social cooperation and, you know, popularity are really being driven by Bitcoin's price going up?
1: Yeah, and that leads into my next question a bit, uh, especially on that sense of social cooperation versus something centralized and regulated. Um, Recently, El Salvador, we've mentioned the president a few times, (laughs) uh, Mm -hmm. announced that the nation would be adopting Bitcoin as a legal tender. So I know you mentioned online a bit that this will definitely shape it to be an interesting experiment, but maybe walk us through your thought process a little bit more on maybe why you're more hesitant than others to celebrate right away.
0: I mean, I think I touched on this on Twitter, and I think this is really the crux of it. You know, when you look at El Salvador, you know, to borrow some terms, I guess, from quantitative research/slash equities or options or whatever you want to call it, you know, there is high convexity in the payoff of this experiment for El Salvador, in the sense that if it goes well, it's going to go really well. Maybe, you know, maybe a example in you know, a Harvard Business you know school study eventually of you know. This transformational event that made, you know, a Central American tiger economy. On the other hand, you know, if it goes poorly, it probably will not be that, it will probably be almost linearly poorly in the sense that I don't think it's going to completely collapse their economy in the sense that it wasn't doing well in the first place. But that said, that's from the perspective of El Salvador. So, you know, I mean, I try to be a nice person and I hope it really goes the best for them. But from the perspective of Bitcoin, which we're looking at here, it's different because Bitcoin needs El Salvador to be a success to really prove that it is, you know, feasible as a world currency. I mean, the defining thesis behind Bitcoin is either it's going to replace gold or it's going to be a currency. I mean, I think part of The initial, if you look at it historically, Bitcoin was developed to be a currency. You know, I think that's changed because of its volatility, whether that's a permanent characteristic or just a temporary one, it's debatable. But if it fails in El Salvador, it's going to be really bad for that narrative because El Salvador is not a major economy. It is, you know, smaller than a lot of U.S. states. And if Bitcoin fails at that scale, that is a problem. You can, you know, hand wave it and say, oh, they weren't ready. Oh, it was something related to how we set up the experiment. But at the end of the day, you know, if it fails there, it's a bad sign for people who believe Bitcoin can be a currency replacement. On the other hand, if it succeeds, it's still not enough to prove that it can be a viable world currency or even a major economy replacement currency. And that's because, again, El Salvador is just not a major economy. And even if it succeeds there, which, you know, I think we should all hope for if we're trying to be you know, good people. I mean, they're a pretty suffering economy and regime. You know, it's not enough. It is a good start, but it is not enough. So overall, I would say, you know, looking at it from the perspective of someone currently invested in Bitcoin, for instance, there's probably some more downside risk here than upside risk. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you on a lot of that. When I first heard the news, my immediate thoughts were that it was was too soon and too rushed and Mm -hmm. potentially done for the wrong reasons. Um, So kind of on that topic, though, of it potentially being too soon, is there a time in your mind that would signal that it would be time for Bitcoin to sort of migrate into monetary regimes? Or do you think there's even going to be a point like that?
0: I don't think there's going to be a point because, you know, At the end of the day, the U.S., I mean, one of the major benefits we have and why we're a hegemon, for instance, is the ability that our debt is denominated in our own currency. And only a few currencies are considered hard currencies worldwide. And those, uncoincidentally, belong to the major world economies and the major world players. So there really is a strong disincentive for adoption. In any successful economy because by definition if you're successful and stable then you have a larger fraction or potentially all of your debt denominated in your own currency which basically is a power reserved to the governing regime and you know that's why you're going to see bitcoin's adoption kind of out of necessity i don't really i'm not one of those people who are believe that for instance the world's going to explode i don't believe not a doomer by any means you know i've had discussions i'm like what is the point of, you know, buying from gold, because you're essentially hoping for an apocalypse that isn't bad enough that, you know, you're looking for guns but it's bad enough that our money system collapses, but good enough that gold still matters. Um So I think Bitcoin really is beneficial long term, mostly for less stable, you know, developing nations. But at the same time, you know, I don't think there will be like a opportunity where everybody just says yes, now it isn't. I think someone eventually is going to just have to take that step to try it out. And at the same time, we also need to accept that it might be a failure, and it might be several failures. And it doesn't mean that it will always be a failure, but it also means that we have to be unbiased how we view it and accept reality for what it is.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point, uh, especially when you're talking about the US dollar as you know a hegemon. I think a lot of people, there's a huge misguided narrative, especially in, in the maxi community, about the destruction of the hegemony of the dollar, uh, and specifically how Bitcoin would become integrated into monetary regimes in uh, de- like more developed countries, and that is that destruction of the dollar definitely won't come from within the United States, and it's not going to be Bitcoin that causes its demise, it'll be the adoption by everybody else that would force a world power into actually adopting something. So I think with that, it's it's interesting to see what's happening in Latin America currently, uh, whether or not other countries will follow suit, and then whether or not Bitcoin will actually help mitigate some of the issues that we see in Latin America, like true hyperinflation and true monetary corruption.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it was the only way really forward. Like, I don't think they're, you know, the way that I view it is if the dollar eventually does get to or. Rather, a couple scenarios. Eventually, the dollar will lose its hegemony, just like every other regime that's ever existed. You know, if it is sudden, I don't think you will be worrying about your Bitcoin. I do not think you'll be worrying about your equities. I, I think you'll be worrying about getting food and shelter and taking care of your family. If it is gradual, then there will be enough time to transition. And, you know, it will not be the catastrophic event people are looking for. So. You know, it's this weird, you know, I talk about it a lot. I mean, there's obviously a vein in the Bitcoin community. It's very strong in the gold community where people are kind of praying for an apocalypse, but they don't really think about it thoroughly to understand, you know, whether their preparations will even matter for that apocalypse.
1: Yeah, I think a great example is Venezuela. So I was a researcher at a think tank in D.C. for three years, and I was their Venezuela specialist. And the narrative I always hear is, oh, hyperinflation, we're going to be like Venezuela, you know, amongst the maxi, amongst Twitter, whatnot. And it's interesting because when you look at the actual problems in Venezuela, in hyperinflation, was just something else. Like, it, it wasn't the, the real pain in Venezuela. The pain was the food shortages, the hospitals not having running water, its citizens losing 19 pounds, an average of 19 pounds a year because they didn't have food or water. Mm-hmm. And this mass migration we saw. The absolute detriment yeah. and destruction of institutions in Venezuela, whereas inflation just became a symptom of it. So I think you're definitely right on that, where people don't realize what the what their cries are actually calling
0: for. Yeah, because at the end of the day, it's like, if the government collapses and if our regime collapses, money doesn't really matter. I mean, maybe you could bribe your way out and get someone more stable, but, you know, I think everybody believes they're going to be the actual protagonists in some dystopian movie when it's more likely they're going to die in the scene. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like a dark but good point. So
0: on a lighter note,
1: another hot take time. So Lily and I are way too online. There's no debating that. It's not even a question. We're both way too online. And you've recently migrated from being like fully immersed in FinTwit to, you know, crypto Twitter. Um, so I'm coining a little... A little variation of Kiss Mary Unalive called Hire, Meme, and Deactivate. So give me your, your top three Crypto Twitter picks one you would hire because maybe they have good alpha or something, one you'd start a meme group with, and one that you would deactivate if Jack gave you the power.
0: I guess, I mean, I really don't have any people on Crypto Twitter like I hate. I know there's people who hate me for <laughs> sure, I mean, but you know. Nobody's really that important. I really am a fan of CL, you know, and EGOL Capital. So, I mean, it's really cool to see that interaction, especially with, like, Joe Reesendall and Bloomberg. Um, higher, other than you, of course, Allison, I would say, you know, and first people I work with, um, probably someone like Tarim Chitra or Dave White from Paradigm mostly because, you know, or Hasu, you know, also I believe they work in paradigm too, because, you know, there is a lot of creativity and quantitative thought going into a lot of descriptive crypto products. You know, it isn't to say that these or band tag slash arthem from, you know, urine. These are very, very intelligent people. You know, it isn't just like a game or, you know, some weird millennial fetish in the sense these are very well designed and thought out systems and you know, I can see that they're super passionate about it as well. And you know, if they weren't succeeding in crypto, I'm sure they'd be succeeding in something else. And some of them come from high frequency or the tech industry and you know, clearly they have the chops to back it up.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. It's been really interesting to see this sort of power coming out of social media. Something I wonder, I don't know if you have strong opinions on it, whether or not this would have happened had COVID not happened. Whether or not we see such strong network effects.
0: Yeah, I know. I mean, it's definitely like, like Finchwood especially got a lot larger. I think when COVID had, I mean, not only were people trying to understand the market because, you know, the market kind of went crazy last year, but a lot more free time and, you know, this kind of emergence of more parasocial relationships where, you know, these influencers, which I guess you and me are influencers, unfortunately, yeah. um, unfortunately, you know, they hold substantial sway on determining opinion. I mean, I've seen my tweets being cited in Bloomberg, which is absolutely wild. You know, I've seen, you know, people like Kyla or like you, you know, be cited in traditional media, and it's like, this is a fundamental shift, I believe, from, You know, this panel of experts who may or may not be experts, to more just this idea of like meritocratic decisions. You know, where people are following people they want to follow. You know, not always does the best person get it, but at least the person who's most popular gets it. And there's like a lot of power being generated by this, you know, transition over, you know, partly spurred by COVID, where people can essentially leapfrog the traditional pathways to getting you know, financial power, essentially.
1: Yeah, and I think that's it definitely coincides with sort of the overall theme that true crypto supporters have about crypto, which is to bring cryptocurrency and better lives to people who either are in poverty or who don't have access to the tools they need to succeed and to sort of grow and, and lever up. And I think especially with finance industries that are Dominated by a specific demographic of people, it can be really scary, really difficult to make those connections and get into those networks. Mm-hmm. so, have you? Found, I'm sure I, I know we we both met on Twitter and <laughs> we both grown together. But have you found it as more as you know the good outweighs the bad or?
0: I mean, it's been difficult. Like I I remember I got really freaked out in April because I got two death threats from basically Twitter, which is insane. I mean, you know, I don't talk about anything really political. I mean, I've been, you know, super quiet in the sense that I'm a progressive. I'm pretty well known in a lot of respects from my model and, you know, my work on options, dominance, essentially, where people have said pretty awful things to me or questioned my motives. You know, there's been at the same time, other people on Twitter who have tried to, you know, essentially poison the chalice, you know, that were much more friendly to me when I was a smaller account, and just some kid and then, you know, got pretty vitriolic when I was interviewed in Financial Times, for instance. At the same time, I've met awesome people like you, you know, my friend Alex Good, you know, Chris, uh, others who I have learned an insane amount from and I heavily respect, you know, their opinions and what I was able to do over the past year I don't think could be done anywhere else. I mean, I think that, you know, social media is really useful for learning really quickly, especially if you are approaching the idea of influence from, you know, you're trying to actually do right by your audience. And that's something I talk about a lot. And it does bother me that, you know, in a sense, I'm going to use you and me as an example, you know, I have much more... You know, power than I probably should. I've speculated with friends that, you know, if I tweet about something, I can essentially move the market, especially on the smaller and medium-cap stock. And, you know, I haven't seen anything conclusive there, but it has made me really nervous to talk about the market in essence because, you know, I do not, I'm not approaching this from the idea of trying to make personal, you know, profit. I've really never profited directly off of Twitter. Um, At the same time, you know, there are people, there are awesome academics on Twitter, there are amazing quants and researchers who are just not as prominent. And, you know, I think there's a lot to be said about the value of it. There's also, on the converse, a lot to be said about, you know, the lack of value of it. But I do hope, you know, at least my view has been amplifying if I come across good content. You know, I think. As an influencer, you kind of have this mandate to not only do right by your audience, but also continue learning and being a better version of yourself. Because, you know, the most succinct way I can put this is one day I hope to I hope to deserve the audience I have. And I think that's something as an influencer you have to strive for, or you you end up turning into someone like Naval, where everything you put is just a fortune with you.
1: Yeah, and I think it is really tough, that dynamic between wanting to produce good and wanting to help other people and then maybe having people tear you down from it. Um, and I was talking to a friend about this the other day, you know, like the whole joke, like the meat, like speaking Portuguese, like with great power comes great responsibility. Mm-hmm. But it's true, you have to be very careful with what you put out and make sure mm-hmm. that everything you put out is, you know, well-researched or well-informed. And that's not to say that we don't, you know, make mistakes, we're all learning. Um, And I think people tend to cling on to even the smallest of mistakes or the smallest of discrepancies and try to turn that against you. And really we're trying to create an environment where learning isn't such a scary taboo thing. We all, you know, we're all figuring it out. None of us know exactly what we're doing. We're all just trying. We're all going to make mistakes along the way. But I think that's where the difference really is, right? Whether it's genuine or whether or not you're just spewing out stuff.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think the dangerous thing about financial Twitter and, I haven't seen as much on crypto Twitter, but that's, you know, I think more just related to how new it is, but, you know, versus traditional equities and how people invest in it, is there is a strong, perverse incentive to look like you always have the answer. And the truth of the matter is nobody has all the answers. You know, the market moves because it does. It doesn't move because anybody's model is necessarily more accurate. It doesn't mean... Conversely, that if your model is wrong today, that it is invalid. And I think, you know, the dangerous aspect arises because people tend to gravitate toward confidence and toward surety. And, you know, it is more attractive when you are an audience to say, I have the answers. I know what the market is gonna to do tomorrow. And I think part of it for me was, you know, when I started, I knew my models were not 100% accurate. And I knew that, you know, I just knew it was impossible just based on quantitative or probabilistic understanding. But I blew up at a point where my model was nearly 100% accurate. You know, there was a phenomenal period in January to March where if you had played nope, for instance, you would have made something like 2000% return. And it's dangerous because, you know, obviously it feels nice to almost, you know, Look like you control the market people, but you know, at least if you've thought about it, surely that it's a temporary situation and that over time, everything regresses toward the mean. So, you know, while there is this, you know, push, especially in asset management, for instance, to look like you have all the answers. As I said before on Twitter, there is literally one misstep between being loved and lionized to being hated. And, you know, when you're playing with probability and random processes, that step is not under your control. So, you know, it is important to always stay humble about what you can know and what you can predict and to make sure that you're always trying to improve yourself and make sure that if you are gonna play this game, you're mindful that what you know today will not necessarily be true tomorrow.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people could learn from that (laughs) on both sides. both it and Google (laughs) Twitter. But um, back to a serious topic. While some argue that there is no second best, a common rhetoric in economics is that we're living in a world of second best, whereas the first best option isn't attainable. Um, And in game theory, this would sort of equate to operating from a Pareto-inferior Nash equilibrium. For those who aren't familiar with the game theory, Uh, A Pareto point is one where no individual is made better off without making anyone else worse off, Uh, and a Nash equilibrium is a stable state that occurs when no participant can gain by deviating strategies when considering the strategies of their opponent or other players. So the question here is that in terms of our global financial systems and monetary regimes, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, is it possible that our traditional means are actually a Pareto inferior point, even if it is some sort of Nash equilibrium, um, but we're prevented from reaching this Pareto optimal point because of Coordination problems or uh, switching
0: costs. I mean, I I kind of think of it more, and I guess this will just turn my background. That it's more of you know this idea of saddle point, where if you look at let's like, say mathematics or you know especially the the science of or I guess field you would call it of convex optimization, when certain problems are very well defined as how you can approach, you know, what is called the global optimum or what you would call, you know, I guess the Pareto optimal in this case, as you increase the dimensionality of your space, most problems are not well defined in the sense that you can always achieve a global optimum. And, you know, the financial system is that, I mean, first of all, there's perverse incentives, you know, most people do not really come from you know, the perspective of trying to maximize, let's say, a global utility, they actually are like looking to maximize either their own utility or at least a very local variant of it. But, you know, even if you look at it more abstractly, you know, I was having this conversation earlier, civilization works essentially like a greedy algorithm, where nobody is taking a long view of history or setting up, let's say, the optimum that lasts throughout the ages because we're constrained by our imagination to really this timeline of maybe 20 to 50 years that's nothing when you look at humanity that's nothing if you look at a universal scale but pretty much everything that we think about and how we what dictates our actions is really constrained on this pretty short-term finite time horizon and the danger when you do a greedy algorithm a lot of awesome algorithms are greedy is very rarely, if ever, you will see a global optimum being reached. So, I can't say we're, let's say, in a second best scenario, it's probably like a 200,000th best or something, but it's pretty much assured we're not in the optimum.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you think the optimum, like, you, and so you just sort of mentioned this, but is the optimum even something relatively attainable? Like, could we be half that, you know, get to like 100,000th best? <laughs>
0: I mean, it really depends, you know, again, I'm just going to approach it most abstractly in the sense, you know, we can view society and, like, our current state as this continuous function, because time is not discrete when you, I mean, if you look at infinitesimally, I see the people that are discrete, but nobody does. Um, when you transition between states, you know, there will always be a point where you are in between those states, and we can improve to this, in general, people are not going to agree to take on a state where you are locally or currently worse off by doing a certain action, than you will be, from the previous action, even if in the future it's better. You know, you can look at it from more of a systems perspective for stuff like the Bellman equation, where you have a discount factor applied to future actions, and, you know, whatever. We can talk about Markov chains on another time. But... Basically, um, what that means is there are a lot of states that may be more globally optimal given a certain sequence of paths you take to go from, one us say, our current state to those, but the in-between states are significantly worse off. So in those cases, a rational actor is not going to take that pathway unless, let's say, your discount factor is really small and maybe your future... I mean, again, you could argue a lot of this from a game-theoretic perspective that doesn't really apply in reality, but in general, you know, there are certain global optimums you can argue, or rather, I guess you can't really argue certain global because there's really only one global optimum, but there are certain better local optimums that are just unreachable. And it's possible that the global optimum is still unreachable based on our understanding of how to discount the future. (laughs)
1: that's a really great point. It's, it's interesting because there's an Austrian economic sort of sentiment where we're constantly in an equilibrium, whereas the general equilibrium shifts as even as we're transitioning. Um, and it's, it's not so black and white as, you know, is this point better than this point? Um, there's a little bit more depth to it,
0: theoretically speaking. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's really if you look at it just as, you know, this idea of space of some sort, you know, let's say we take all the dimensions of what defines an economy. And you know, you still have to live in the in between. And if the in between you can easily construct a space where certain especially from a starting point, which we take the current time, certain parts of that space are basically unreachable given how you decide that Asians should interact with the world. Mm -hmm. And you know, that does that mean that, you know, there will never be an optimum. I don't know. I mean, this is very philosophical slash pseudo bullshit mathematics so (laughs) maybe, but I also don't think it's, like, really definable in the first place. Yeah.
1: There is no second best because there is no first best.
0: (laughs) I mean, there could be, like, some global unknown optimum... Aliens. Whatever. Yeah, aliens. or when we adopt come rocket it's like a- <laughs> oh <my laughs> god, so that's, that's clearly the law of.
1: Yeah, when the the
0: real flipping is come rocket flipping Bitcoin, so exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm very bullish on I'm very bullish on stupidity. Like my <laughs> golden rule of the markets is I the way that I predict things is I think what is the stupidest thing that could happen at any given point, and then I just do that because that's what's gonna happen. Okay.
1: Right. Well, closing out today's interview, um, I have a few last questions for you um, on sort of the topic of this emergence of modern money in the future of finance. So it doesn't have to be limited to the crypto space. But what do you see as the next big thing? And this can be even a problem, like the next big problem.
0: <laughs> I mean, I guess from an equities perspective, one thing I think about a lot is, there's, you know, I talked to Mike Green, um, Simplify, Cop- or Simplify the ETF provider and others, I mean, you can see over the last couple of years that there has been this acceleration of the market's returns. And, you know, my speculation of this partly is related to this idea of leverage. You know, when the market is outperforming, it, as an active manager, you essentially are always gauged based on how the market does in relation to your returns. So when you have, let's say, some functional strategy the only way essentially to increase returns is to lever up. And you can see that a lot of leverage has moved from this traditional idea of let's say recourse leverage, where you know, you have some collateral backing into non-recourse like options. And I think that is one of the fundamental factors rather than what people think is, oh, it's retail, buying, you know, you know, YOLO one day pull. No, it's not. It's institutional players basically moving into this non-recourse leverage to generate substantial, you know, returns on existing strategies to kind of compete with a market that's continuously accelerating. And, you know, a lot of people speculated how this ends. I think, you know, many people are hoping it ends with like a bang, you know, like some kind of crash. I'm not really in this camp, you know, I think a lot of these ideas and doom and gloom are the window has been shifting it used to be oh you know coronavirus is going to kill us all and the market was going to crash again or oh the fed is printing money endlessly so the market's going to crash again and now it's like oh meme stocks and crypto are going to kill it's like that it probably is not going to happen um do i think we are moving to a market where volatility in the sense of realized volatility is going to become more of the norm versus what we're used to let's say in the mid 2010s bull run, probably, you know, I think it is kind of a fundamental property of an option dominant regime, you know, so that is something I think about a lot, you know, one of the things I like about crypto in the first place is this weirdly degenerate market based on leverage, uh, which makes it like weirdly predictable, but that's, you know, I mean, that's more of, I think, a temporary thing versus what we're seeing, which is more of a structural shift toward higher non-recourse leverage. Mm-hmm.
1: And then um, in a perfect world, where do you see crypto in the next 10 years? And this can be, again, anything from integration into market regimes to, you know, growth as an asset class to it being nothing.
0: <laughs> I mean, I guess I have to separate like crypto as an idea of like the blockchain. And, you know, I guess you could even say a currency from the existing currency classes. I tend to be more bullish on Ethereum just based on my background, you know, as a CS person and I believe there is a place for decentralized apps and I do believe there is probably a place for trustless transactions. Do I think that any given currency that exists now will be it in the sense of like put your money down there? It's harder to say. You know, I don't, not one of those people who believes Bitcoin's going to hit a million dollars Point in 2030, it could. It also could at zero. Um, I believe there's a lot of value in blockchain technology, um, you know, in traditional boring finance stuff like settlement layers or, you know, remittance across borders or proving pat- or simplifying patent law, for instance. Do I think those are valid use cases? Yes. Do I think crypto is going to go away? No. Um, But I would be pretty much lying to you if I could give you a price target of what Bitcoin should be worth.
1: Yeah, I agree with you, especially in terms of blockchain technology. And where I see, like personally, where I find most interesting is its integration into aviation, which, you know, is definitely not a hot topic in the crypto community. Um, But I have one, one last question for you. It was submitted from Twitter completely anonymously. Um, I'll read it to you. So, Lily, I know you are amazingly intelligent and dashingly beautiful, but how do you stay so
0: humble all the time as well? I mean, I just, you know, I just put my dresses on one leg at a time, just like everybody else. (laughs)
1: Beautiful.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we love a humble queen.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining me on this this wonderful inaugural episode that my computer almost overheated for. Um, it's great learning about your perspective, especially just I don't know, kind of. I think people are definitely starting to get more interested into the theory side of things. So I think it's bridging that gap between economics and crypto is becoming a increasingly popular theme. But let everybody know where we can find you. I know you're on you're on Twitter. I don't know if you're on Instagram.
0: I don't. Instagram, but I do some Nopitz Lily on Twitter and also I have a Substack where I talk about marketing mechanics and statistics and stuff. Nopitz Lily. Awesome.
1: Thanks so much again for coming. And definitely follow mm-hmm. Lily. <laughs>